Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. Hello and welcome to this Seattle Public Library podcast. I'm your host today, Librarian Kay Kirkpatrick. Today's podcast is the result of the Seattle Public Library taking a year-long look at ways we can improve library service to our court-involved and formerly incarcerated patrons. This involved listening and learning about the very real challenges and barriers facing people when they are released from prison or involved in the court system, including understanding the struggles their families and communities face as well. One of the most eye-opening events the library participated in this year was a re-entry simulation produced by Columbia Legal Services in Seattle. The simulation allowed participants to experience firsthand what happens to a person re-entering from incarceration, the pressures and difficulties they face even though they have quote-unquote served their time, trying to find housing, get a job, reconnect with family, and meet all their obligations while under the weight of a prison record. At that event, today's guest, Justice David Keenan, gave a very moving introduction that painted a vivid picture of the conditions people encounter. Judge Keenan knows multiple sides of our justice system. He was raised by his mother on public assistance, was arrested and charged as a youth, and dropped out of school after repeated suspensions later earning his GED. He previously worked in civil practice on numerous pro bono matters representing detained immigrants, prisoners, and other marginalized communities. He served as board president at Northwest Justice Project, president of the Federal Bar Association, and as a member of the board of Team Child and the Seattle Community Police Commission. He also spent nearly 15 years in law enforcement working full-time as a federal agent while attending law school. Judge Keenan joined the King County Superior Court bench in January of 2017 and serves at the Melig Regional Justice Center in Kent, where he now presides over criminal and civil trials. Welcome, Judge Keenan, and thank you for being willing to share your insights and remarks with the podcast audience today. Well, thank you for having me, Kay. And, you know, we, as you said, you and I met at that simulation and it was so powerful um, because what it illustrated for the stakeholders that were there is just the series of bad choices uh, that you have to make when you are re-entering the community from having been uh, incarcerated. And as a new judge, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, the actual implications of the work that we do. In the justice system, we use a lot of legalese, we use a lot of terms. Um, that make things sound really um, maybe better than they are. And what I talked about at that simulation, maybe what I'll talk a little bit about now, is if you come to my courtroom any Friday of the year, you can watch me spend an entire afternoon breaking up families, ending careers, cutting off access to housing, 
isolating people from their communities. And, and that is because every Friday, typically starting at 1 p.m., I have what we call a sentencing calendar, a fancy way of sending that I spend the afternoon sending people to prison. And they call it a sentencing calendar, but I sometimes think of it as deportation or really a form of exile because we are taking people out of their communities and we are sending them away. Now, often there are legitimate reasons uh, to do that, but the implication, the, the result is we are taking people out of their homes. We are taking people away from their loved ones, and I have these calendars where Husbands and wives and partners and boyfriends and girlfriends and children show up. And it is the last time, um, maybe, that they will ever see that person, even if they're only going away for a few years. And that's because what the data tells us is that when folks are in prison, they almost immediately lose contact with their families. Um, and what the data also tells us is if you can maintain those, those contacts with family while you're incarcerated, you have a better chance of succeeding when you get out. Now, it's not our goal in sentencing someone to break up a family, to cut off somebody's employment prospects, or to deny them access to housing. Those aren't our goals, but those are the realities. And when we, when we talk sometimes about what happens to someone when they get out of prison, we use this term collateral consequences. just means it's sort of a, it almost happens by accident. Um, but the fact that we don't intend to send somebody away from their community or to prevent them from getting a good job or to end up homeless doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about the fact that that is, in fact, what happens. And, and as a community, I think we need to acknowledge that. And sometimes people talk to me about the justice system, and I always push, push back on that term and say there's no such thing as a justice system. There is no such thing as a system that is set up to produce justice. Um, the system we have right now is actually set up to produce these consequences, to, to render people unable to get housing and employment and access to health care, mental health care, physical health care. Um, and we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable about the fact that there's no system out there just cranking out justice. Right? And my, my father um, and I have both been arrested and, and, mm. uh, and charged here in King County Superior Court, the court where I'm a judge now. And and uh, when I was arrested as a young man or when my father was arrested, nobody would ever say, well, uh, Dave Keenan is down there in the justice system getting some justice, right? right. They, would, they would never think that I was. Uh, and so when we talk about somebody going to prison and being in the justice system, we ought not fool ourselves into, into thinking that they're off someplace in some camp getting justice, um, in fact, what, what they are out there doing is, is having their chances, their prospects going forward in life diminished by the day for every day that they serve in mm -hmm. prison. Um, and when I sentence somebody to prison, it occurs to me that I will not ever see that person again in all likelihood until or unless they have reoffended and are back before me for trial or for sentencing. And if they're back, it's at least part of the reason is because of the barriers they faced when they reentered the community the last time. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot also about the school-to-prison pipeline, although I refer to it as the birth-to-prison machine. It's not a pipeline. It's not linear. You don't really just start in school and, and end in prison. But if we're being honest, 
because of the barriers at reentry, it would be it would be more accurate to call it a prison-to-prison -prison pipeline um, because the system is set up to send people to prison, but it is also set up to return people to prison. Over 90% of the people that I sentence this Friday will eventually come back to the community. And that's reason for hope. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that two-thirds of them, once they come back to the community, will go back to prison. Mm -hmm. um, we, we know that from, from the data. And so what I ask when we're trying to eliminate these barriers to reentry, when we were doing the reentry simulation for people in the community and stakeholders, the question is, how do we interrupt that, right? So the 90 plus percent that come back to the community after having been incarcerated, how do we keep them here so that they don't become the two thirds that then return to prison? It's something mm -hmm. that I spent a lot of time thinking about and some of the approaches that we take um, are civil legal aid for low-income people returning to the community. And what I mean by that is, you know, okay, if you are charged with a crime in our system, uh, if you're charged with a crime and you cannot afford an attorney, we sort of know from having heard our Miranda rights, whether it's in, 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 in the media or on television, that you have the right to an attorney at no cost to you. That's if you're losing your liberty. But what if you're losing your home? What if you're facing access, uh, a barrier to access to housing right. or employment? What if you are struggling um, to visit with your children or with child support or access to health care or access to credit? You don't get a free attorney, right? And yet what we know is if you don't get legal aid in those aspects of your life, you are probably more likely to end up back uh, in the criminal system. And so there's a there's a certain reinforcing mechanism and not in a good way. And so one way we try to disrupt that is by helping folks who are coming back to the community, whether it's through Columbia Legal Services, which mm -hmm. helped organize this reentry simulation, or Northwest Justice Project, which is the largest civil legal aid provider in Washington. They have about 17 offices around the state. And though that's yeah. a place where people might actually find direct aid more than Columbia Legal Services, which uh, functions <clears throat> as a... Uh, my understanding as an advocate and kind of trying to work at a larger um, policy level, is that correct? Exactly. And so um, Columbia Legal Services does a lot of what we call impact litigation, mm -hmm. so systemic reform. So they might file a class action lawsuit on behalf of a lot of people who have been incarcerated or who are incarcerated to try and achieve system-wide reform, mm -hmm. whereas an organization like Northwest Justice Project might take on a single client um, for example, again, somebody who's facing barriers, a low-income person who's facing barriers to employment or housing. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have Pioneer Human Services, which also participated in the reentry simulation, and they provide direct uh, services mm -hmm. to people reentering the community. In fact, I keep their brochures on my bench in the courtroom and hand them out when I can, mm -hmm. um, although often the folks I'm sending to prison are going away for a very long time. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's so true. They're an amazing <clears throat> organization as well. They are. Yeah. Like taking the power to really employ people, find people jobs, find people housing, train people, treating the whole individual. I feel one of the things that we've learned as well, just um, from our year of study and listening to this issue, is just how important individual intervention and mentorship is, and having somebody there for you, like you're saying, an individual to help you legally, a friend to turn to, somebody who could help you when you come out as an individual. 
instead of just an institutional response or $40 and a bus ticket. Well, I completely agree. And, and you know, we know this for mentoring young people. Um, there is a lot of data, for example, um, when we talk about the school to prison pipeline about young people who need one caring adult in their life. Um, uh, because whether it's a young person who is in foster care or somebody who's been incarcerated, um, those populations, those marginalized communities are used to folks not showing up for them. They're used to instability. And so it, for a grown-up who's been incarcerated just as much for a young person who's in foster care, that one caring adult who's willing to make that investment of time and resources mm-hmm. is critical. Um, and, you know, it's very short-sighted when we talk about funding for these things, um, I was uh, guest lecturing a, an American government class at a college recently, and somebody said, "Well, how are we going to fund the mo- how are we going to fund all of these reentry services for physical health care and mental health care and employment and housing?" And I said, "You know, the question don't ask the question of where is the money going to come from. Ask the question of where is the money going to be spent because it's already being spent. Mm-hmm. It costs thirty seven thousand dollars a year." to keep somebody locked up in the Department of Corrections, and it's over $100 a day to keep somebody locked up in the King County Jail. So it's not a matter of what do you, it's not a matter of, of whether you spend the money, it's a matter of what you spend it on. And, and so I encourage people um, to talk with individuals in the legislature and in the, and in the executive branch, whether it's at the city, county, or state, or federal level, uh, and tell them the money's being spent. Don't tell me the money isn't there. It just needs to be reallocated mm-hmm. and, and, and invested upstream. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I push back on that idea that there aren't enough resources. There are. They're just, I think, not being wisely allocated right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on um, what the community uh, can do to help with this situation? or um... well, well, so part of it is, again... Working with your legislators, and and there are um, things that they've done in the legislature in the last few years, and there are more things that they could do. Uh, one thing they've done in the last few years is passed a bill um, for certificates of restoration of opportunity, which is helps individuals who's been incarcerated um, basically get a certification that uh, that gives them access to certain employment prospects that might have been cut off otherwise. Now. Mm-hmm. One thing we are seeing in the legislature that they're working on, but it hasn't been passed yet, is legal financial obligation reform. So, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Those are long words here. <laughs> Could you well, break that down for our listening audience? Sure. A bit? <laughs> it just means your legal debt. So uh-huh. when, when somebody, when I sentence somebody to a felony, mm-hmm. typically it's at least $600 in fines and fees, a $500 victim penalty assessment and a $100 DNA collection fee. Those are mandatory. Hmm. So... Even if I know that individual uh, is indigent, that is to say they keep, they're not going to be able to afford to pay those fines and fees, I have to apply them. Mm-hmm. And right now, those accumulate 12% interest. So if I, if I impose $600 in, in, in fines and fees, legal finan- what we call LFOs, legal financial obligations, it's kind of a catch-all. If I impose that at sentencing and then they serve five years in prison and they don't make any payments on it, which would be typical... Um, by the end of that five years, it's $1,000, right? And if you're coming out with minimal employment prospects and no income, um, that might as well be a million dollars. So one thing they've talked about in the legislature is uh, either granting judges more discretion uh, when imposing those fines and fees, and judges have some discretion, but I I think not enough, 
but also eliminating the interest rate, which would, um, which would help because 12% is a lot, and it's ticking every single month. Um, yeah, more than home mortgages, <clears throat> I would say. Exactly. <laughs> and another thing is, um, you know, if you are a small business owner, for example, consider whether or not you want to be what we call a second-chance employer. Um, so mm-hmm. I serve on the mission committee at Fair Start here in Seattle, which some of your listeners may know uh, mm-hmm. is a great organization that helps folks who um, are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless folks and in marginalized communities and, and helps them find work in the food industry at various levels. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about second chance employers. These are employers in the community who are willing to hire somebody who has, for example, been convicted of a felony. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, somebody's got to take a chance. Uh, uh, so I would encourage folks who have not, uh, folks who are out there who are listening, wondering how I can help. Uh, that's another way that you can help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thanks. That's really good thoughts on that. Um, uh, we, we probably should wrap up soon. So I was wondering if you have any final thoughts you wanted to share or, um, you know, I would, I would just say if anybody is listening and they've been incarcerated, um, know that there are many judges, I'm not the only judge, many of us judges really don't want you to end up back uh, in prison. We don't want you to be incarcerated again. And and, um, I welcome people to come visit the court. If you are somebody who has been incarcerated and you want to come and learn more about our system and how our courts work, if you want a tour of the courthouse, email me uh, at at Keenan, K-E-E-N-A-N, uh, dot court at kingcounty.gov um, because we care about you. We absolutely put me out of business. I, I don't want, so I never have to do another sentencing calendar uh, again. And I absolutely believe in abolition. And what I mean by that is that I can envision a world where we are not arresting and incarcerating people. Um, and it may... Uh, I think some people would say that that's not realistic, but it is something I wake up every day thinking that I can work towards. What a great goal. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Kay. We're so honored and lucky to have you on our bench listening to uh, our cases. And thank you for the very moving thoughts and being willing to share your voice. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you to you and the Seattle Public Library for bringing these resources to the people that need them the most. Great. Thank you. Okay. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.